The theme for the evening talk is living with the unknown. Um, uh, firstly, before I begin uh, the talk, I'd like to uh, um, introduce you to Venerable uh, Sudanan, who is uh, sitting here on my uh, uh, right. He is uh, a Buddhist monk from Thailand, and he and I have been uh, friends for the past uh, how many lifetimes, uh, Sudanan? Uh, about 20, 28 years, I think. Yes, 19, uh, 1970. And he uh, ordained initially in his uh, teenage years for many years and then uh, disrobed. And uh, then uh, later uh, got married and with t- two sons. And after a number of years, uh, one of his sons took ordination, became a Buddhist monk. His wife became a Buddhist nun. He became a Buddhist monk (laughs) again. His mother became a Buddhist nun and his father became a Buddhist monk. (laughs) So he has his own tradition. (laughs) Family tradition. (laughs) And when I was a a novice in uh, southern Thailand and went to, as it was called then, Wat Tao Court, a monastery outside the town of Nakhon Sitamarat in southern uh, Thailand. Venerable Sudinand was uh, very, very supportive and very helpful and made a wonderful contribution in my transition from uh, lay life into uh, monk's life. So since my initial ordination time as a novice and then as a monk. Uh, we have been friends and have uh, kept in contact uh, over, over the years. Of course, we have the same uh, teacher, Ajahn Damodaro, and uh, of course many close friends amongst the, uh, the monks and nuns. So I'm delighted that uh, Sudanand is here for uh, a few days, and it's a real... Uh, pleasure and privilege for, for myself. So I'd like to speak with you this evening with regard to uh, the known and the un- unknown. Probably hardly needs to, to be said how much and how frequently we take so much for granted. And in taking so much for granted we live in a world perhaps of too much familiarity and the manifestation of that can show itself in uh, relationship to the known. So here you and I entering into this world, passing through this life and through the various sense doors that we have the world of the known becomes familiar to us. Namely, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. And the world of the known as well, in terms of the, uh, the feelings and the thoughts and the states of mind which arise inwardly. And all of this becomes apparent to us. 
and therefore we feel in all too often we live in the world of the familiar and the known and what helps to reinforce that as well is the influence of habits and tendencies so that when you and I examine and step back and uh, look at our life you see how much the habits and the tendencies move the mind onto the known onto particular things which were similar yesterday and similar the previous day and the previous week and the previous month and so our world our belief in the world our thought about the world tends to relate around what we know what we think what we see and hear, etc., what is familiar. And there's a certain kind of, uh, not a very good one, but certain kind of security in all of this. And a certain kind of uh, comfort in staying steady with the known and with the familiar. But of course, how quickly and how easily our consciousness can get smaller it can shrink around the known and the familiar and sometimes the tendency of the mind that goes with it is once it is in a conservative way small c but sometimes big c as well keeps, wants to keep a hold over the known over the familiar and one of the, when that pattern and tendency is strong inside of ourselves the influence of it is wanting to have control over and sometimes we can observe this in not only in people's lives but in people's relationship to things and it might be whether in our own lives or we go to visit somebody and go into his or her home and everything is absolutely in place and it's painfully clean and painfully precise and if one just does one thing drop the cup it's crisis because the mind wishes to have control over wishes for order wishes for things in this case things to be in a particular way and this with the area of control over it's often a vulnerability to things going wrong and therefore suffering and problem and difficulty arising sometimes when we step back and look at our relationship to the known and the strong attachment around the known 
may see in ourselves just how much control we want to have over things, person, situation, our lives or whatever. And trying to keep control over is hopeless. Hopeless. And when things are not in con- we are not in control of, look at the fear. Oh, nightmare. Look at the fear. So from the inner life, you say, oh, I wish my life to move in its direction. I wish to move from the known, I wish to move from the unknown and expand it and go to the un- from the known to the unknown, etc. But, it's one thing when there is awareness and commitment and action in the movement, but if there's something else going on with it, something extra, called trying to have control over the situation, High risk. High risk. Sometimes we find ourselves reflecting on a situation and we say, I really wish to do. I really wish to respond to. I really wish to engage with. I really wish to commit myself to. And, hopefully, for most of us, it's hopefully all, it's a noble aspiration, mostly. But for anything that you and I engage in, anything at all that you and I wish to do in this world, it requires the cooperation of others. Anything. Even the privilege of sitting up here and giving a Dharma talk, I don't know how many here have managers and 40, 50 of you or whatever, it requires your cooperation here, namely, shut up, <laughs> namely, keep silent, namely, don't get up and dance, <laughs> or whatever. So for one person to be able to do something, to engage in something, to make something happen, it requires the cooperation, the support, the acknowledgement and recognition from others. And if we don't, if we forget that, if we neglect and ignore that, one or two things tend to arise. Maybe more, but certainly one or two. This is just in the known. A, we can start blaming ourselves. What is it that I'm doing wrong? What is it about me that things don't happen? Why is it other people get their life together? This is an old chestnut. Why is it that other people really seem to get their life together and things happen for them when they want them to happen? And when I want something to happen, it seems to take lifetimes, and that's an understatement. So when we forget cooperation for events, 
self-blame, self-reaction, being judgmental towards oneself occurs. Or, and easily, it swings the other way. Well, if people really understood what I have to offer, if, uh, if uh, there really was energy, or if people really worked hard, if they were as motivated as I was, etc., etc. Those of you who have ever been on committee meetings will know exactly what I'm talking about. Then things would happen much more quickly. So with the movement uh, for activity in the field of the known, it is like this, I would like it to be like that. In the field of the known, it still requires an immense amount of cooperation for anything to happen in this world. One phone call to anybody in this room could change things dramatically tonight. And you'd be out within the evening for one dramatic phone call. And there have been many to Guy House over the years. So we see the movement and the intention there. The action in the field of the known to do something and when things are not going as we wish, which is a, a test of our mettle and our uh, wisdom, it might be necessary to reflect back on ourselves and say, well, am I trying to have too much control over a situation? Am I asking or expecting, anticipating too much of myself, too much of others, or whatever, because if there is a movement and there is an exaggeration, in this case control, then it will show itself in reaction, in fear, in blame, in disappointment or whatever. Wisdom comes first in the movement of the inner to the outer, and it sometimes takes some really clear reminders with ourselves. Things are not always in the known. To be really acknowledge that very, very well with ourselves. Sometimes it shows itself, somebody commented on this today, um, one of the major events on any retreat um, is in the food queue. And sometimes we think, oh, the meditation hall is the, is the main place of action and everywhere else is a recovery. But actually, we can see uh, a lot from ourselves in the, in the f- food queue. Actually, it's, I must say it's very short at the manager's end, but <laughs> and for teachers. And in that, the managers put out the bowl, and, or bowls, privileged. And, uh, and therefore, there will be in the food queue, obviously, the, some people who uh, will be first, in the first part, and there will be guaranteed, some in the middle, and there will be guaranteed, because it's one of the few guarantees in life, that there will be people at the end of the queue. All of history has confirmed this, and we can have anticipation that all queues have a, have a beginning, middle and end to it. And then inside of oneself, 
there can be preferences arising and one of the major preferences of uh, people who eat in places like this despite the cold and damp weather is, is, is the salad you know, obviously a reasonable percentage of people might have been rabbits in their last lifetime I'm not sure but nevertheless salad does have a, a popular theme so there's the cue there and then the mind arises with the preferences oh, natural, human, human enough but then something else arises as well and it goes from preference it goes sometimes into the language of need this is one of the great deceptions of self-existence it's called need and I, here it arises, need what? my, what? greens my salad and the anxiety level is at work for the poor devils at the end of the queue and while the others who have been here before are all up there at the front two hands in the salad bowl <laughs> well, slight exaggeration, one maybe and the persons at the end is stretching their neck, giraffe-style, to see what's left. So there's the perception taking place, there's feeling arising, there's I need uh, um, uh, arising, and that begins to take a hold within. It actually, it can be so strong, it's actually affecting the stomach. It's actually creating unpleasantness in the stomach. It's creating contraction in the stomach, agitation in the stomach. And one is going along the belief that it's the, the greens which matter. As though we can't go by a day in our life without sinking our teeth into lettuce. It's extraordinary perception. And sometimes, uh, and hopefully not here, but in, in some places in the world, people are, are queuing for the food half an hour before the lunch, just to make sure that the salad is going to be at the front. So say, looking at that, I'm you know, mildly exaggerating, <laughs> but looking at that, it, what's going on? Control, what's going on? fear, what's going on? Oh, I must have, if I don't have, I will be. And that can become a kind of, tragically in a way, a mirror story, an image of what's going on all over the planet, of what's going on in the world of the haves and the have-nots the obsessing of the belief with I must have I heard recently of uh, one of the applicants to the Shafan Buddhist College for the uh, September and the college runs a wonderful uh, program uh, near, nearby on the other side of uh, Totnes of uh, Dharma teachings, practices and a very firm and solid introduction 
for a whole year, residential uh, year for most, of uh, the traditions and their applications into uh, contemporary life. Some of you here will know and be familiar with it. And one of the persons, some people do, have uh, certain health issues. And the person wrote a a letter to uh, Sharpen asking if he could cook animals and birds and fish three times a day because he needed it for a diet. Well, firstly, I wasn't quite sure if the animals, birds and fish had been consulted about, their, uh, about uh, all of this. But one finds it, find, I find, hard-pressed to believe that one has to eat that in the name of necessity. I find it hard. I'm hard-pressed to believe so sometimes the mind, in its view, in its perception of, thing, of uh, things, may not realize that the feeling life and the emotional life gets very much identified with something. And the potency of that can do more harm to one's health than uh, uh, the way that we eat. And I just use it as a small example in life, especially since we've um, raised the refrigerator to the level of being our only pagoda that we have contact with, that the frequency of journeys when there is control and anxiety to the refrigerator is extraordinarily common. And it's become a different kind of health issue. We're agitated, we're unsettled, we're feeling life is pained or hurt or whatever it might be and we feel a hole, H-O-L-E, hole inside of ourselves and we want to fill it. We want to feel nourished and easily the mind then keeps going to the same avenue for it. Can the eyes be nourished as well? Can the ears and the listening to people, to life, to nature, to birds, can that be nourished? Can the smells of life can be can we be nourished that way? Can we be nourished just by touching and experiencing life and presence to life? So that we're really fed through all the senses. So therefore the, the, what is known to us does touch us and we do respond to it. Because if we don't, and there's a tendency, the tendency will run relentlessly and mercilessly to where? To the tongue. To one sense door to get nourished. And then we try to fill ourselves up that way and it's as we know it's a bottomless pit. Life struggling to live in harmony with things. And the increasing concern from our health services, from our physicians and from our community, from ourselves about the degree of obesity in our society. Something goes on in the feeling life, in the emotional life and something is unfulfilled and then it rushes in one area very easy. 
rushes to eating. So I say, therefore, the daily food queue, not, not always so easy. Even though one might regard 7.30, 12.30, 5.30 as the peak experiences of the day, but sometimes in the queue, despite the pleasant thoughts, God, those lovely smells emerging out of the kitchen. But for some, it's anxiety time. Can I be steady, calm, clear, relaxed, patient? Can I be aware that in the privilege of being in the front of the queue, there are others who are not? Can, I, can my awareness extend beyond what? Beyond myself. Well, that is part of teachings of awareness to see self is what? Self exists in relationship to other selves. It doesn't exist exclusively, narrowly for itself. Why? Because our experience of life confirms to us the self to be, it needs the cooperation of others. Insights in the real uh, uh, times can be far better teaching that you're going to get up the front from people like me. And sometimes a little reflection, I, my, my, my favourite one line is, is from the, uh, uh, the rabbi from Nazareth, you should know his name, it's the only rabbi's name I actually know, and he said at the, the, the festival of the, of, the, of, the, of the meal, he said, the last shall be first. at the festival when they were going to dine. The last shall be first. One could spend a useful lifetime just uh, reflecting on the very profound insight of what that means. So there's the world of the known. And sometimes, as I mentioned, with the world of, of the known, the feature of the, of the known, sometimes we, we want to stay within it. We feel a certain security in it, but it can be easily threatened by countless circumstances. And therefore, the known isn't something fixed. Not our job, not our health, not the place where we live, not our prospects, not our circumstances, not our relationships, or whatever. So you and I have an acknowledgement of the known, but we ask, and Dharma teachings have made a strong emphasis on this for generations upon generations, what in life is the significance of the unknown? Of the unknown. It doesn't mean to... to feel the unknown, to sense it. Sometimes it's just in the kind of general, almost uh, overview of that. And we say, oh, before I was born, it was unknown 
I don't know what I was before I was born, or where I was, or, or if I was, or whatever, etc. Before birth, before conception, or whatever, it's massively unknown. When I die, despite all the various views, religious and secular, it's massively unknown. So here I am, as it were, wedged between these two polarities I call birth and I call death, and I move in this world of, from birth, movement through to death, and I seem to be moving day by day, mostly in the field of the known, what I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, etc. And I know the end of life will cut it off. But I also know, in fact, that when I go to bed at night and put my head on the pillow, I have a natural interest in the ending of the known. I get thoroughly fed up. So I'm lying there with my head on the pillow and the known won't go away. I don't want to know any more about what I did today. I don't want to know any more about what I did yesterday, and I don't want to know, know any more about what I want to do tomorrow. I don't want to know any more about myself, and I certainly don't want to know anything more about anybody else. All I want, when I put my head down on the pillow, is a real ending to the known. And if I get it, I put my head down, and I go into a deep sleep, and and don't seem to be don't seem to be dreaming. I mean, I know people say we're dreaming all all all, all the night, but some of the people like me here can record about three dreams in a, in a year. So I'm dead as a dodo when I go to sleep, and I go to sleep uh, whoever the eye is, and all the known is familiar. I, I mean, familiar. Kind of daydreaming. All the known is gone. All the, that which is familiar is, has dissolved. I'm in deep sleep. Therefore, I wake up in the morning, and when I wake up in the morning, I say, God, I had a really deep, deep, deep sleep, which is another way of saying, God, I, I had hours without having the known. And I'm refreshed by it. I wonder if that's got some significance. You know, do I have to, I may have to spend a quarter or up to a third, as some of you even worse, of my life so fast asleep? And then I move out of it. So I have a natural daily appreciation for the ending of the known. That's the primary interest every time the head goes on the pillow at night. Since it's there naturally, since it's there naturally, we call it an extension of it, we call it death. Where is it here and now? Where is it in life? Where is it amid, amidst the known? Because if I can penetrate into it, maybe the difference between deep sleep, death, and life before birth and after the body goes to utter stillness, death, maybe the difference is not so big as I think it to be. Maybe the difference is, maybe there's nothing to fear 
as I seem to imagine at times when I'm holding to the known and I'm afraid of the unknown maybe because I'm not seeing the known and therefore life and death maybe the difference is not as I imagine it to be not as I think it to be or afraid it to be and I've got some indication of that day in and day out by the elements of the unknown which keep coming to me and also by the fact I appreciate deep sleep I'm human what is it about unknown? what is it about it? Sometimes it, one reads in the newspapers and, uh, and of course many other things I've got in mind here the, the extraordinary book called the uh, Guinness Book of Records there's a, a catalogue of eccentric human behaviour and someone got a whole list of people who have done all sorts of weird and strange things and then they fill in a form or their friends do and get a few people to confirm it and then they end up in the Guinness Book of Records and then somebody else comes along and says oh I can do better than that and they take it a little bit further and this is the world of the, the, the Guinness Book of Records forgetting the bizarre aspect of all of this for one moment there's something in life about, as I referred to earlier, a day or two ago, about stretching the mind. About moving it, as it were, expanding it beyond its, what, familiar levels, beyond what is known. And the many small ways and gestures in life that we can do that, and it's something about, without going to extremes in life, about challenging ourselves, which somehow acknowledges what? The limitations of the known and the capacity to take risks to experience the unknown. With wisdom and with clarity and of course, etc., not in ego and selfish and arrogant ways. And sometimes that helps to open up our world because we have a sense and a love of what the unknown is. And to extend and to feel, in a way, the, sometimes the sweetness of it, but sometimes the terror of it as well. Let's take simple examples of it here, what I'm talking about, make it clear. One wakes up in the middle of the night and one feels um, uh, uh, extremely 
extraordinarily alert. One doesn't feel tired, and one looks at it and says, Oh, God, it's three o'clock. And the bell ringer is not going to be groping around the house for another two and three quarter hours. So the mind quickly can come in and say, I must have my sleep. I'll be absolutely hopeless tomorrow. I'll be doing standing meditation and falling on somebody's back and they won't be very pleased about it. And the mind quickly comes in with what tomorrow will be if I don't get my sleep. And therefore, the wish, the desire for to stay in the known and, the, and in the familiar. And it might well be that it's much more important for us and significant to wake up, to be uh, awake, and to use the, the beauty and the stillness of the night. And sometimes people do. Either just by sitting in their room, or get quietly up, and just come in the meditation hall, and you know, pretty well most of the northern hemisphere is a, is a, a, a sleep or half asleep or whatever, and one is awake and in the silence and the stillness, and sometimes periods and moments like that are deeply precious. But it just takes a little encouragement from within, a little extra determination, not just to stay with the known, oh, I know, I'll feel tired tomorrow, oh, one will feel tired tomorrow, so what? One's got tonight, one feels awake tonight, one feels energy tonight, one feels alert tonight, one feels present tonight, one can discover much tonight. It's those kind of steps, those kind of initiatives which I refer to. And sometimes the moment passes us by. I was um, just speaking of a moment passing one, 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 by, one by. When I uh, was staying in um, Porto Pienza um, last week, in the middle of the night, there was a huge lightning, thunder, lightning storm. And the rain came down in buckets, one of those real end-of-the-season storms and the sky was lighting up and dr- dramatic. So, uh, I woke up and no doubt plenty of other people uh, uh, woke up and in the room where I was staying there was a, a, a small balcony just looking down over, over the street and pouring with rain and the thunder and the, and the the uh, lightning came and the first thought that I had oh, fantastic I'll go out and and walk on the beach and watch this and I thought oh, too lazy (laughs) and uh, just went went and and just stood on the balcony and and watched one of the great light shows that nature has to offer humanity from the relative security security of the of, of the balcony and just watched it watched it from there and then when it stopped after an hour or so you know, yawn and whatever and went back to bed and got up the following morning and I thought bah, blew it what the hell am I doing standing on a balcony watching a great storm to be down on the beach watching it 
So I just use it as a small example of what I, what I um, mean uh, of just taking small steps, just a small thing in life. But it's what? It's just a movement of the known and into the unknown. Something a little different. We had a woman on a retreat, it's story sticks in my mind. She was uh, dying from uh, cancer and just had a few uh, months uh, left, to, left to live. And she said to me that she would wake up sometimes at four o'clock in the morning and couldn't go back to sleep, knew that the world of the known and the familiar was coming to its end. So she would get into her car and just, she lives on the uh, outskirts of the city uh, of London, and would just drive at the, in, uh, uh, through the period until the dawn around the streets of London. And sometimes find a, a, a cafe where the, the, the office cleaners and the, uh, the workers and the bus drivers, etc., were, and ha- have a, a tea and, and, and toast with them and just watched the whole new day come up in the city. And she said, I'd worked in the city in an office for years and years. And she said, there's just a whole different sense of life, a whole different sense. Why? Just same thing, but a different time, and therefore touching one in a different way. And her appreciation and her enthusiasm and just relating it to me was very, very touching. Obviously, it's years ago, and I still recall it. So it's that kind of expanding there, with sometimes some uncertainty, yes, sometimes some risk, yes, it still requires the, the cooperation of, of others, of course, of course. Where does the capacity of that come from? First of all, it has to come from an interest in the unknown. It has to come from a, a deepening of depth, so that we see that in true nature of things, in fact, the unknown is far greater than the known. The unfamiliar is far more expansive and extraordinary than the familiar. And therefore, much to be discovered via the through the unknown. And sometimes, even without doing anything, like in the examples that I just referred to, sometimes in just the silence and in the stillness of things, the sense of the unknown is there. And we're not doing anything. We're not extending ourselves, we're not taking risks, uh, we're not being adventurous or whatever. The sense of the unknown is there and the intimacy with it, a love, a love affair uh, with it is beautiful. And part of the beauty of it is that it's so extraordinarily liberating. Liberating from what? Liberating from the idea of being imprisoned in life, imprisoned in the prospect of death. Therefore, let us use as human beings our resources as fully as we can. 
acknowledgement for the known, our relationship to it, realize and understand that the known rests and belongs in the unknown, and really see the extraordinary intimacy that embrace the known and the unknown. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings be in touch with things. May all beings live an expansive life. Let's have our quiet minute or two together, shall we please? <laughs>